Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and join us for our analysis and commentary on the week's tech news. We've got stories on Nokia, Google, video codecs, and more. First, a little bit of business. Our sponsor today is Thousand Eyes. You can join Thousand Eyes on July 16th for the State of the Internet. This is a virtual event that Thousand Eyes will unveil its latest research on internet performance, covering public cloud, CDNs, and DNS providers. You can also hear from experts and leaders in internet and application delivery, including Jeff Houston, who was recently a guest on IPv6 Buzz, and David Belson. Sign up at thousandeyes.com slash state of the internet 2020 dashes between each word that's thousandeyes.com slash state of the internet 2020 you can save a spot or register for the on-demand recording to watch at a later date stick around after the news for a sponsored tech bytes conversation with appster where we talk about how intent-based networking is an evolution of network automation yeah which i believe in by the way appster is getting on the right le- level here in that uh, we're moving to a post-automation uh, situation now where and I know that many of you still aren't automated and whatever, but that's the point of the conversation is how can we you know, get automated before we get to post automation? Yeah, well, I think I've always said, you know, that there's five steps down this automation path. And the first is scripting, then it's automation tools, and then it's intent based networking where you start to close a loop, then it's analytics and visibility, and then it's autonomous. And this is this is the discussion, and we're talking with the founder, one of the founders, the co founder. Uh, Mansoor about mm-hmm. how he sees that happening and what's happening with Appster. Of course, they are moving towards a more open environment and, and that product continues to grow in new directions. So it's a good chat uh, we're sticking around for. All right. All right, let's get into some news. We're starting with Nokia. They announced a new network OS. It's called SR Linux. It targets data center switching. SR Linux is built on a microservices-based architecture. It runs Nokia's internet protocols, but is customizable and can run third-party applications. The company also announced the Nokia Fabric Service Platform, or FSP, for building, monitoring, and deploying network fabrics. SFP includes the capability for operators to build a digital twin of the network fabric so you can validate designs and changes and help with troubleshooting. Okay, a lot happening with Nokia. Yeah, lots of things happening this week. The big one that they seem to put most of their marketing resources behind, and you've always got a part of what we do when we think about what we're going to put on the network break is how much effort is the company making? Is it sort of like dropped a tweet, you know, which means <laughs> not a big deal? And uh, other times it's like, you know, people jumping out of aircraft to sort of attract attention to the fact that they're doing something. Right. Sort of. Skywriting. And- yeah, and that's part of how important. So um, Nokia put up a pretty big effort here. Lots of chaff flying all over the place about how awesome it is that they've uh, copied everybody else and come up with an open opera, open NOS. Right. That's a little bit harsh, isn't it? No, it's not. Not too I, much. I think, no. <laughs> yeah. So SR Linux, so, you know, it's doing what everybody else is doing and saying, well, why are we making our own operating system, whatever it was? They're probably using some sort of custom Unix or some sort of real-time operating system that they were paying somebody for. So overdue, I think, was my initial reaction uh, the new, totally open, extensible, resilient network operating system designed for the data center operational environment. We've seen Dell with the Sonic. We've seen Cisco with the refreshed version of its uh, um, iOS XR. It's all container-driven, which is pretty much similar to what everybody else has done. Um, and they've brought the code over. They talk about bringing the code over from their uh, Alcatel acquisition. So they've brought all of the routing code and software over from that to bring it together. Yep. So. Not innovative per se. It seems very much to me like we've got what everybody else has got. What did you think? 
I thought the same thing. I thought uh, they're touting innovation, but they what they've really done is just sort of made the table stakes. If you want to be in data center switching, particularly now if you're targeting which they are hyperscalers, cloud providers, and service providers, you know it's it's got to be extensible. It's got to be customizable. It's got to support mm-hmm. streaming telemetry, and it, it does all those things. But they haven't moved the needle really. I think they've just put themselves in a position to now compete with everybody else who's doing the same thing. So you mentioned Sonic, that's an open source yeah. version. Mm-hmm. You've got companies like Arcus with their Arc OS, which has a pretty much a similar design as far as I can tell. Um, even Cisco with NXOS uh, has the same kind of modular design, Linux based um, kernel, mm. all that stuff. So yeah, not, not, not necessarily innovative, but it does now let them compete against these other customers for that data center mm. for the hyperscalers. Yeah, so this isn't targeted at mid-sized enterprise where you buy, no. uh, so it's not going to compete with your everyday Cisco type of customer. This is uh, what they call hyperscale enterprise, cloud scale, um, service providers and cloud providers, right? So this yeah. has been for, and I think a lot of those bigger companies are saying, well, we've got this hardware. If you want to give us a solution, you have to bring your software. We're not, we choose this hardware and it's going to be white box from, you know, whomever running Broadcom or, you know, Tofino or whatever in Ovium, but mm-hmm. your operating system has to work on that. And I think if you're a managed services provider, Nokia's biggest part of their actual revenue stream comes from a managed services contract basis where you're a telco or you're a service provider of some sort, and then you sign a contract for Nokia not only to sell you the equipment but then to operate it, Mm. right? Ericsson does a similar sort of thing. If you have a 3G, 4G, 5G network, um, and Huawei, by the way, um, then quite often the telco doesn't operate it themselves. They actually just subcontract uh, Nokia Ericsson or Huawei or whoever to actually operate that whole infrastructure. Hmm. And so having Nokia's own software on white box hardware, I think is a requirement. I think the cloud scale providers and the hyperscale enterprises are saying, no, no, no we aren't going to buy your, you know, Nokia branded switches. We've already got them in the data center. If you want to operate them, you have to bring your software to the table. That would okay. Be so this is one thing I was confused about because I, <laughs> in, in the materials that I looked at, I didn't see anything about this being disaggregated. It sounded to me like it had to run on Nokia switches and they've released a new line of switches, but I didn't see anything about it being to run on a white box. Did you find that somewhere? Uh, they def- it's not there. It's, 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 it's implicit. You have okay. to read between the lines, right? <laughs> They're saying we run industry standard ASICs. So we're using disaggregate, you know, merchant silicon. Uh-huh. So what they're effectively saying is it runs on anybody's white box switches. But you would have to get Nokia to approve the switches that you have, right? Mm-hmm. So it won't be mm-hmm. just just because you're running Jericho or Tomahawk switches doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily certify the software. They're going to have to say there's certain pieces of white box. And I think that is what cloud scale providers want. They want the ability to turf that software out and Absolutely. go to switch to Cumulus or switch to NXOS or switch to Sonic if that's what they want to do. They don't want to be buying, you know, some sort of custom hardware from a provider and then be nailed to the floor and have to rotate out that hardware. Yep. Yeah, that's why I was surprised that I didn't see anything about that uh, in all the announcements and material that I read. It seemed like it was pretty tightly coupled to their devices, but maybe it is implicit because it seems like if you're going to approach this market, it would have to be a standalone network OS. And... If you're Nokia and everything has been Nokia branded and everything comes from your, you know, that's the history of, of selling the turnkey solution, right? Yeah. So they're not going to talk about being white box. They don't want to promote that thinking. <laughs> be, right. You know, but that would be the reality, of course, right? Yes. Um, I think at the end of the day. So they talk about lots of different things. So, you know, of course I see this as the open network operating systems is a slow 
rather majestic process. You know, the industry continues to sort of support open, but it's not like, you know, open stand, you know, open networking just suddenly walked up to the door and went, blam, we're here. Everybody jumped on board. It's much more of a little bit here, a little bit there, another uh-huh. step, you know, uh-huh. little crack here, a little crack there. So I think that's what it is. I got the sense from reading the material they're really targeting service providers yes. and they see this as edge compute. So they'll be able to have, you know, this is, means that they'll be able to use white box or lower cost silicon and then put their own software on it. And then it's all within their own control. They're not, you know, having to rely on cumulus features or, you know, sonic features in an operating system and have to build a development team. They've decided to go down this path. That's right. So there's that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a good idea for Nokia to be here because we see uh, a lot of opportunity in the data center at the at the hyperscaler and, and cloud provider edge where if you've got a better network OS, you can potentially get into the market. So uh, being there, I think, is smart for them. At the same time, they are facing a ton of competition because we also see Cisco going after it, Arista hmm. very heavily going after it, not to mention all of the open source things like Sonic, Cumulus, um, Mellanox, and so on, chasing the same space. And there's also just free NOSes out there as well. That's right. right. The Linux <laughs> so, Foundation has six or seven you could choose from. That's right. And I think it's interesting to sort of say, well, we've got our own and we'll put it in, you know, we would like to see you use this as part of our solution. Right. And that's what that's what I think it is. And, of course, they've got their own hardware. They can go and buy OEM gear from China just as much as Cisco or, you know, Arista or Juniper can because they've all got their white boxes, right? Mm-hmm. They just put their own label on the front and... Why would you continue at this point? We know that, you know, that idea of building your own product, designing custom silicon, all that, that's pretty much gone for networking. And most of the vendors, aside from Cisco, who continues to pursue proprietary silicon in a couple of product lines, but even so, in, in for a substantial part of their portfolio, it's merchant silicon. So that that um, boat has pretty much sailed. Although we saw them talk, Cisco recently talk about its new uh, what was it, a year ago now, they did a bigger launch around their new Silicon One for routing. I think right. routing or a specific type of routing will continue to occupy a space above where standard uh, merchant silicon can go. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a market for that. Maybe not. I'm not convinced one way or the other. But I think the other part of this in, in the openness is, in, uh, is that Nokia also had a set of announcements this week about announcing more support for Open RAN. So OpenRAN is really an approach by um, telcos to say, stop building proprietary solutions, stop building these aggregated stacks with all these proprietary APIs. And we've seen AT&T and Verizon and various of the European telcos throw their support behind OpenRAN. And what Nokia has announced is that they're adding OpenRAN-compatible APIs to their proprietary airscale platform. So if you're building a radio access network, in the past, you always had Nokia APIs, and that meant you ended up buying Nokia software, and you had to buy the whole thing from Nokia, or you had to buy it all from Ericsson or from whoever. And now what they're doing is adding the OpenRAN. Now, OpenRAN is intended to be an open-source solution for building a radio access network. So instead of um, buying Ericsson or Nokia or Huawei and using their software to run your RAN, you could now start to look at an open source solution if you were um, in that, if you as a telco or a service provider, you were that way inclined. And what they're now saying is, well, we'll support the APIs. So that means two things. One is Nokia can put their software on top of a telco running an open RAN. So if the telco decides to run an open RAN in the 5G base station, Nokia's uh, operational software and business process software at the top can talk to that and manage that. Mm-hmm. And 
At the same time, the reverse is also true. If you're buying software which manages those open RANs, you can use Nokia's equipment in the RAN and then somebody else's solution above it, if that's what you want. And that is fundamentally a major transition in opening up the radio access network. That is a major, major transition. Okay, some big news from Nokia this week, and welcome to the data center party. Yeah, well, welcome to the open party. <laughs> better, better late than never, I guess, but uh, good to see them uh, making a, a pretty solid showing of it with some uh, uh, you know, Linux on the devices and making their switches relevant in the modern era. Yeah, It'd be interesting to see how their um, FSP, which is their fabric services platform, took me a long time to get into that. They were sort of, that was buried in the announcement, but it's a piece of software which is... Um, they say lets you support intent-based network automation at all phases of your data center fabric operations, but it wasn't a focus for the announcement. So it makes me feel like that was announced some time ago, but we didn't see it. Uh, maybe I also felt like it was more sort of intent washing or intent uh, like, <laughs> in, like it's on a roadmap and they just need to stick it in there because everybody does. Um, the, the thing I, I could think was interesting was that that digital twin model. That's something we've seen from folks like Four Networks and Veriflow, uh, yeah. where you essentially build a digital copy uh, that you can test changes against. Uh, that's interesting to see in Nokia. But the whole intent side of it, uh, yeah, I need to do more looking into that. Yeah. At this point, this, sometimes the word intent means we actually intend to ship this product or we <laughs> intend to make it. And so, right. I don't know. It does. They seem to have a fairly comprehensive thing. There's no reason to think that it's not there, but I haven't seen them talking about this before. And it talks about, you know, Kubernetes, intent-based distributed microservices and cloud-native approaches. This is the usual rhetoric. Yep. Um, but they also talk about a digital sandbox, which actually allows you to emulate your fabric. Right. And to test everything. And if that's true, then that's actually probably unique in the intent-based, aside from somebody like Forward and so forth, Airflow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't heard anybody else, uh, like its other competitors, uh, talk about that. So, yes, that's yeah. good. Well, now, Nokia, if you're listening, reach out. Let us know. We can't find anybody. Your organization is large, shall we say, <laughs> and hard to find the right person to talk Right. Yeah, we'd be happy to talk if you want. Uh, we'd love to get more details. Uh, that aside, let's move on. AT&T has added Cisco gear as an option in AT&T's managed SD-WAN service. AT&T will operate Cisco ISR and ASR routers at the customer's branch in remote locations and provide a cloud-based portal as part of this managed SD-WAN. I believe they're using the Viptela flavor of Cisco's SD-WAN. Uh, AT&T is also touting security features that come in this service, including next-gen firewall, IPS, and URL filtering. So... Part of me wants to go, is that the sound of hell freezing over? You know, watching AT&T turn to SD-WAN. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's it's reasonable to assume that AT&T realises that the SD-WAN movement will happen with or without them. Yes. And I think from very careful reading between the lines here, this is AT&T's enterprise division. So there's AT&T, the telco. There's AT&T, the mobile phone company, mm -hmm. and there's AT&T, the enterprise services company that goes out to enterprises and tries to um, take as much money as possible for doing as little effort as possible to do with managing networks and managed services offerings. That's the classic and, services approach. Yes, that's right. And so when you actually go to AT&T's website and read up about SD-WAN, I was surprised to notice that there was not a single mention of Cisco anywhere. So there's a little bit of a disconnect going on here. Uh, AT&T SD-WAN doesn't mention Cisco at all. 
Hmm. Whereas Cisco is making an announcement that it's doing something with AT&T. So I think the answer is here, AT&T has been using somebody's SD-WAN equipment and they've now agreed to take on Cisco's SD-WAN equipment as part of the portfolio. And AT&T's enterprise division will sell anything to anybody as long as the profit margin's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I so, thought AT&T already had an SD-WAN service based on VeloCloud. I was looking around the internet. I wasn't able to confirm yeah. before we uh, are recording. So if somebody else knows, please let me know or we can follow up on that. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. this seems like the, the second or maybe third person organization they've partnered with. I mean, Cisco makes sense oh, if yeah. you're going mm-hmm. to the enterprise. Uh, Cisco Cisco has very good traction with the enterprise. It'll make people, you know, give mm-hmm. people reassurance of what they're getting and what they're working with. That's right. It's really easy to sell Cisco to some people. And why would you go to all the effort of trying to convince them to go with VeloCloud from VMware? You know, sometimes it's just easy to be lazy and sell what the customer wants. Yep. There was a couple of things. I think, you know, obviously selling Cisco's SD-WAN solution has a challenge because if you're a company that's running Cisco's ISR and ASR routers, then it's okay. It's going to work for you. But if you're looking at a a refresh, it's probably more cost-effective to look elsewhere because the cost of that... Um, I'm told that the cost of ASRs and ISRs in a rollout is substantially more expensive than competitors. So there is a challenge there that I think is interesting, but, you know, it is what it is. But, again, it's a managed service. I don't see this as a strategic, you know, we're ditching MPLS. Although I did notice that uh, uh, Cisco talks very highly of the security features. So they're emphasising the SaaS mm-hmm. um, security oh, and... Sassy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I try and drop the E because it sounds a bit lame, but, you know, the security and application services, you know, they talk about the cloud-based integrators for security features as well as all the things. So Cisco's really emphasizing that they're bringing the secure export portfolio, you know, the the malware scanning, the threat detection engine, the proxy filtering, the DNS firewalling, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's where the play will be because that's where VeloCloud's a little weaker at this point in time. I think VeloCloud will make an acquisition in that space and come up with a much more comprehensive SaaS solution in in due course. I have to say, I find the whole notion of going to a telco or service provider for a managed SD-WAN service kind of uh, counterproductive in that you may not get the kind of uh, cost savings you would doing it yourself or working with uh, a non-telco <laughs> managed SD-WAN <laughs> that will give you mm. some choice in terms of uh, circuits. Uh, so, But again, if you want SD-WAN and don't have the chops or interest in managing it, then sure, you do a managed service. But it just seems like uh, you, yep. you're missing out on some significant advantages of SD-WAN by going with a telco or ISP. Yeah. From what I've heard uh, from talking to people is if you go to companies like AT&T, like your telco, they won't sell you SD-WAN over the internet. They'll sell you SD-WAN over MPLS or broadband, <laughs> right? So it's still right. MPLS. It's still dedicated services. It's high priced. You're really not locking in the savings. But... You know, there are customers for whom, you know, staying with their traditional partner and only eighteen. you know, you didn't get fired for buying from AT&T or Verizon or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, then, you know, there's a a spectrum of customers out there and some of them are uh, well-informed, intelligent, able to make solid decisions and other ones that just want to go home and eat a bag of Doritos tonight and just go with what they're doing. (laughs) And I think AT&T is there for that. What a tagline. <laughs> Go home and get those Doritos. That's it. There's nothing wrong with that. Why not no, just, you know, do you get paid like any Doritos. extra for doing a good job? Probably not. No. Probably not. <laughs> I never did. So why would you why would you get all excited and put in the you know, sometimes it's just like, oh whatever. Just <laughs>
just shake your head and go like, okay, we, whatever. We'll just do. We'll do what. We'll just do that. Yeah. Mm. All right. Lots of links if you want to go look it up yourself. Let's move on. Uh, Bloomberg is reporting that Google Cloud has canceled plans to offer cloud services in China. This was an initiative that Google was calling Isolated Region. Uh, China requires foreign companies that offer technology services to uh, jointly venture with a local partner. Bloomberg quotes unnamed Google sources saying the deal was scrapped over geopolitical tensions and the pandemic. A Google spokesperson denied that politics or the pandemic shut down the Isolated Regions project. Google does say that it has no plans to offer cloud services in China. I think my response to that is the article I wrote in the Human Infrastructure magazine uh, in the newsletter a few weeks ago mm-hmm. about how the internet is becoming balkanized. And so China's got its internet, effectively it's its own, and I think eventually you'll see it actually change technology so it's actually proprietary, so their IP protocol will be different to ours. But we're also seeing Russia do the same thing. Uh, I think America is heading down the same path, like the... Um, security app, security part of the U.S. government is certainly putting more and more effort into network monitoring, and they could isolate their network. And also, the European um, countries, the EU, is starting to make noises about isolating its uh, public network away from the global infrastructure to protect it from attacks, or so that it can operate in the event that it loses contact with trading partners. And so, if Google was doing this, and it's decided to walk away, it may have actually just decided that if if the internet balkanizes or separates into chunks, it w- was originally planning to have these isolated regions, but now it's decided not to bother. But maybe it's just going to say either I'm not going to go there down that path or if I need to do it, I'll have to work out how to do it later because doing it right now is politically sensitive. And keep in mind that you know, Google, Facebook, uh, a very hostile reception with the U.S. government at the moment around, um, you know, how they filter out user comments and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Not going to get into the political side of that. It just, it's the observation. And maybe Google says, I just don't want to provoke any more of this. Let's just put this on hold while we wait for that to all work out. Right. Uh, I should note that Azure and AWS do offer cloud services in China, and they have partnered with local Chinese companies to do so. So uh, Google obviously sees their competitors uh, with a footprint there looking to get in, but decided right for now, no. Yeah, well, you have to give 51% to China, and then China also gets all your code. So you have to agree to do all the development in China. All the source code has to go to China and so forth and so on. So if you're going to set up that sort of cloud, you're effectively giving the technology away. Mm-hmm. to a local operation, which likely, um, and it's not unreasonable to presume that the Chinese government is involved and potentially doing something with that source code in terms of, it, you know, potentially what you might call industrial espionage. Yep. Do, is that true or not? Who knows? Uh, it's not an unreasonable speculation, though. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be very careful. All right, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. A uh, quick break to tell you about Sponsor. Thousand Eyes, they're a longtime sponsor of Packet Pushers, and they were recently acquired by Cisco. They're hosting a virtual event called State of the Internet on July 16th, a live virtual event. For several years, Thousand Eyes has been releasing research reports on how the big public cloud providers stack up from a network performance and connectivity perspective, and we've actually had them on the show to talk about those findings. This new event called State of the Internet is going to showcase brand new research on internet performance. It's a measurement-based study of the availability and performance of the internet and key application delivery networks, including the public cloud, CDNs, and DNS providers. And besides them besides them discussing their findings, Thousand Eyes has lined up expert speakers talking about the health of the internet and the future of the internet, including Jeff Houston from APNIC, Roger Barranco from Akamai, and David Belson of the Internet Society, and others. You can tune in, join live, go to thousandeyes.com slash state of the internet 2020. 
where you can register. And if you can't make the live event, you can also get the on-demand recording when you sign up. Thousandeyes.com slash state of the internet 2020. And please put dashes between each of those words when you go to the URL, or you can find it right on packetpushers.net. Thanks, Thousand Eyes, for being a sponsor. For sure. It should be interesting, actually. State of the internet. Be interesting to compare their view with my view that I just espoused. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like I said, we have had them on the show talking about their research, and it is pretty good because they do have an interesting viewpoint into internet performance uh, and cloud service provider performance. So the, the research, the data is pretty good, and I, I think I may sign up and check it out. So uh, I'll be there. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Uh, the German Research Institute, Fraunhofer, has announced a new video codec that claims it can compress streaming video 50% more efficiently. Yes, no, yes. <laughs> So Fraunhofer, of course, is the company that owns the MP3 uh, intellectual property, and they're the ones who came out a few years ago and proceeded to destroy the whole MP3 industry by demanding uh, licensing fees for using their MP3 codec mm. after nearly 20 years of doing nothing about it. Which <laughs> So they're not necessarily the friends of technology as such, but mm. they have been able to do research into streaming codecs. Uh, there's two parts to this. The original thing that I found was Netflix announcing that they've got a new image compression algorithm called AVIF, A-V-I-F, which um, they talk about as the next generation image coding. And they do a lot of good work, uh, good explanation in the blog post on the Netflix tech blog. Links in the show notes. Um, I think the interesting thing about this is that there's still money in bandwidth avoidance. Like if you've got these brand new codecs, H.266 is what Fraunhofer has announced uh, with the versatile video coding thing. And it's talking about reducing um, half the data compared to what HEVC, which is H.265, to stream a 90-minute 4K video. So if they mm-hmm. could cut the video consumption by half, that is uh, when you talk to, you know, I did a podcast uh, three months ago with Dave Temkin and uh, Dave McRae from BT, and they were talking about just like that the, the bulk of the traffic on the internet is streaming video. Yep. If you could halve the consumption of the video codec, then that is a substantial transition. It really is, um, yeah. yeah. But we don't normally see effort being put into bandwidth avoidance. We just see companies using more and more bandwidth. They use higher-res graphics. They use higher-res video streams. You know, why not make 1080p? Why not make it 4K? Who cares? It's just bandwidth, whatever. You know? Right. So seeing something get, being done around bandwidth avoidance sort of made me go like, oh, hello, people still do care. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I assume they do because, for one, as you said, video streaming makes up the majority of traffic on the Internet, and we're at 4K now. There's talk about going to 8K. Uh, Organizations will find ways to boost video quality, and so, of course, the Mm. bandwidth has to uh, accommodate that. So it doesn't surprise me that folks are still looking at compression algorithms and Mm. finding new ways to get more data across the same pipe. Yeah, and, I mean, Netflix is talking about an image compression that shrinks an image by 75%, 75%, I think, without visible loss of integrity. Right. So really big deal. Now, images obviously not actually is more bandwidth than video because there's images on every single page. So if this new format can, you know, get up compared to what uh, Apple Apple's uh, codec for images has been, then that should actually see a substantial reduction on the internet backbone so that we can fill it up with other trash. <laughs> I mean, uh, with other exciting co- content for for. Or for society to consume, you know, more TikTok videos and things like that. Absolutely, yes. That's what we <laughs> more need. More trash. More TikTok. <laughs> Saving the world for TikTok. Excellent. 
All right. Yeah. Links in the show notes again. Yeah. That uh, Netflix post is very detailed if you want to go check it out and more links there for you. Uh, let's move on. Uh, primary and secondary educational institutions are grappling with the pandemic. Uh, Harvard University here in the United States recently announced that instruction is going to move entirely online for the coming academic year. At the same time, the university says it's going to charge full tuition, which tops $50,000, excluding room and board, which they won't charge. So if you're going to Harvard, it's all online and you're going to pay full freight. And it's a lot. The, uh, the articles I've seen vary between fifty to $75,000 for the year, and they're going to charge it to you so you can study from home. So uh-huh. congratulations. The era of online education is here. Yep. The, the idea that – and, I mean, the initial reaction is the idea that Harvard will charge students the same amount of money for studying from home as the same as they would have if you were on campus, less accommodation. Somehow it doesn't feel right, Yeah. It does. But, On the surface, you go, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> that's Isn't, crazy. That's crazy, right? But the flip side of it is that really what you get from a Harvard education is a certificate with a big brand on it. Yep. It's like driving around in a Ferrari car. What's the difference <laughs> between a Ferrari car and any other? Well, arguably, there's some stuff. But at the end of the day, everybody drives on the same road at 60 miles an hour, you know, 60 kilometers an hour and burns the same fuel. So there is a difference, but most of it's in the perception, not the reality as such. So Right. If you show up at a job application with your Harvard degree, they're not going to be like, Was, did you take a mm. class online? They're just going to be like, oh, Harvard, great. Come on in. Mm. And there is definitely some value. You know, Harvard tends to attract a certain, you know, the elite, perhaps the better students overall, arguably. We could have a lot of, you know, viable arguments around. <laughs> we, we could talk about that, but yes, go on. You could talk about that, but in theory, they have better graduates. And so if you can graduate from the Harvard institutionally, although apparently uh, something let's like Let's just 70%... say the excellence among their students is not evenly distributed. <laughs> I read it. There was somebody who was saying that basically 70% of people graduate Harvard with an A-. minus. So there's no bell curve going on there, okay. shall we say? <laughs> I'm thinking of the folks who walked out with the gentleman C, but uh, that's another discussion. Yeah, perhaps so. I, I think that uh, it's interesting that if Harvard can pull this off, it would be an indicator that remote learning can become a preeminent form of learning. And that has direct applications to us in the IT infrastructure space and as network professionals particularly, um, a lot of people feel that the only way that you could learn something is to go to sit in a classroom and to learn. If somebody like Harvard can switch the trend around and have this a lot more remote learning, and I'm sure that Harvard is going to back this up with access to tutors and regular uh, group sessions where you're, you know, you're not just sitting at home watching YouTube videos. Right. Um, you know, they're going to be doing something there. They've got an awful lot of staff. Um, that they still have to do. But if that can come off the ground, then I think the turning to remote learning would actually start to happen in the US. And, you know, that could be a significant driver. Yeah, I think there is a perception that remote learning is substandard. Um, And in some cases, it can be borne out depending on how good the instructor is and the kind of support and resources they have around them to promote the remote learning. But the fact is some remote learning can be excellent and you can get just as good an education uh, through an online class as you can an in-person class. Uh, And Harvard, by saying, yes, the the educational value is exactly the same whether you're in-person or online, is putting a marker down on online education saying, yes, it can be feasible and effective. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. It's not that. It's, uh, oh, my God, what are we going to do for money? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, okay. Yes, there's also that. Yes, this um, is not a strategy to drive 
a new era of edu- of enlightened education. This is absolutely how do we keep stitching people up for seventy grand a, qu- a year of for a Harvard degree? Of course, when we can't put them on campus, when they won't come to campus, right? Right. So no, don't. That's not the right spin at all. Um, so <laughs> well, I think. That, is, I mean, I think that's how Harvard would spin it. But yes, we can yeah. debate the accuracy of that spin. Yes, they wouldn't have done this if without a pandemic forcing them to. No, absolutely not. No, it's not yet. Um, no, absolutely not. Of course not. But so the flip for us is um, a lot of people think that they learn better in classrooms because they learn to learn in classrooms. So my point would be is that a lot of us, you know, we went to school, we spent the we spent twelve years doing K through twelve, kindergarten to to graduation, yeah. right, pre university yeah. or whatever. Yep. And what the first uh, six years of school is is learning how to sit in a classroom and sit down and shut up and listen. And learn, right? And the second six years is kind of when you learn something, right? It's kind of how it works. And so if you try to go and do learning after school, you've already learned how to learn in the classroom format. If you want to learn, if you want people to understand remote learning, then you have to actually retrain yourself to consume remote learning as a viable form. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like it's like the whole work from home issue. Some folks are going to thrive as remote workers. Some folks are going to struggle because they prefer the in-person environment. I think it's going to be the same thing for education. I also think online learning can be effective for some kinds of classes, less effective for others. I'm thinking like chemistry, biology, physics, where you need labs and equipment and so on. Uh, That's going to be harder to reproduce that experience online. So there's going to be challenges. So there's that. And then the second part about it is is that uh, the U.S. government, uh, the ICE, which is the Customs and... Um, immigration, immigration and Customs Enforcement, yes, ICE. Yeah, has decided that uh, if your uh, university is only going online, then your visas are now uh, invalid and you should leave the country. Right. Uh, so now that's going to have a, a de- definitive impact. I just call that out because I think that this is going to drive the digital transformation of remote learning much harder. If politically the governments are actually forcing the students to leave and to, if they want to stay engaged, they have to do it remotely and then driving them out of the country. Now, foreign students is an enormous revenue stream here in the UK and for the US. Absolutely. And so for the government to suddenly, you know, the immigration body suddenly say, all right, you don't need to be here because you're no longer required to attend campus. You should go back to your home country is a real problem. And I'm sure there'll be uh, lawsuits and things like this. Already launched. Yeah. But from my point of view, it's going to force remote access or remote learning to become a thing much faster. So not something I think is a good thing to have happen, but it is. if there's a silver lining, if it's not much of a silver lining, but <laughs> that might be it. We all get to benefit. You know? Yeah. I mean, I see that as a break on remote learning because um, if I can... Uh, yeah, I, I guess I take the opposite point of view that if I'm a foreign student and I'm just going to do it online, then maybe I would look elsewhere anyway, and it increases the competition. So uh, I see yeah. a lot of universities saying, kind of looking to say, hey, maybe we'll just do a one credit in-person class just to sort of get around this rule, uh, because they do rely so much on foreign students, not only for the money, yeah. but also because these are good students. Well, what I want to see is um, technology platforms that support remote learning. So you can have uh, groups of people getting together to discuss a topic or access your tutors, how to get, like, so far the whole remote learning thing has been pretty half-assed. Um, yes. You know, you go to Coursera and those sorts of things, and it's not all that great. It's basically just watching a bunch of le- televised lectures. Right. And there's so much more scope for interactivity. Absolutely. If this happens, then that whole 
um, industry should spark into life and we should start to see a lot of innovation. And that's what I'm, I'm not going to get into the politics of this. I'm just saying in terms of driving an innovation in education, this is actually um, something that could make it happen. Right. It's driving disruption and that creates the opportunity for innovation and we'll see who takes that up. And that's got a lot of meaning for us as IT professionals because if you don't have to go, you know, take a week off work and go and sit in a location in a classroom for 36 hours a week and then come back, like VMware, for example, their certification program was you have to go to one of our certification centers and sit there for a week, waste a week of your life sitting in a classroom being taught whatever and then come and sit an exam. And there was no option. That was... That's not that's not the future. Right. Right. Or at least it won't be the only future. There'll be other no. options. No. I think the whole remote learning thing, you know, that idea of sitting in a classroom, forced being forced to sit in a classroom the way VMware was doing it was absolutely not the right way to do it and, and grossly offensive overall. Hmm. All right, lots to think about and talk about there. Well, I'm sure we'll be coming back to this. Uh, one more story. Greg, you had some thoughts about VC funding. Yeah, this week we saw uh, Uber Eats by Postmates. Both of them are food delivery companies. And the interesting thing here is that Postmates was bought by Uber for $2.65 billion in value. So, uh, in other words, the people who own Postmates got $2.65 billion of Uber shares. So maybe they're not worth $2.65 billion. Up to you, because neither company is profitable and both are burning vast amounts of cash mm-hmm. to deliver food to your house in the U.S., But the basic business model here was that Postmates is a company that existed to burn cash until somebody else bought them. So the idea was to make a loss (laughs) for five to ten years until they found a market and or die. So what you actually have here is an interesting situation where both Uber is making a massive loss and it bought another company which was making as much of a loss in the hope that it could actually not make so much of a loss. It's still not going to be profitable. Like the whole home delivery business is wrong. Now why this matters is... This sort of funding applies to enterprise IT. There are companies out there, startups, with hundreds of millions invested in them, particularly in the storage industry, who will never make a profit. And the only reason they exist is to be acquired by bigger companies mm-hmm. and um, because they don't invest in R&D. So it is worth sort of tracking these sorts of sales and trying to pick the winners here. If you're a network strategist or an IT architect, and you're looking at startups in the industry and trying to decide whether you could commit to this organization for two to three years as a startup to get some competitive advantage. One of the things you need to understand is that funding and purchasing is part of the life cycle of these businesses. And that's right. what I was trying to get across. And I don't think I've done it justice here, but I'll, I, I wanted to flag it to you. I guess I feel like in the enterprise IT space, uh, the, the startup market is a little more disciplined than in the consumer space because you, I feel like you actually have to solve a problem. You can't just be cute or fun or convenient or the 25th iteration of a you know meal kit delivery service, um, which doesn't mean there aren't bad ideas in enterprise IT, but I feel like mm-hmm. it's, it's a slightly different issue. And getting acquired... Uh, you know, by a bigger company in some ways is a good thing because that technology can then live on, whereas opposed to like this Uber Eats and Postmates thing that's essentially a game of chicken where they're hoping all the other yeah. delivery services die before they do. Well, look at it this way. Postmates raised $900 million in VC funding. Mm-hmm. They sold out to Uber for $2.65 billion in Uber shares, mm-hmm. so, you know, whatever. In theory, somebody's just made uh, over $1.5 billion in profit of capital money while yeah. never making a profit. Right. And never right. and there was never a pathway to a profit. 
Right. No, it's insane. Um, the, the VC model is insane. Hmm. It doesn't make any logical sense. <laughs> well, this particular v version of that model doesn't. No. And right. you're right. Enterprise IT is a little bit different, but we're still seeing companies get $100 million, $200 million and run before they collapse. Sure. You know, or, or go into a, a distressed sale. So it is happening in... Uh, the reason I flagged this is because this was very high profile. And my belief is that if you're an IT architect or network architect, you need to understand this a little bit if you're choosing uh, businesses that you're going to put into your strategy or to partner with going forward. And um, there's just so much money sloshing around in the VC community, including really enterprise is. IT startups. It's crazy. That um, stupid money and stupid ideas are actually finding places to go. So, <laughs> Yes. You, you do always have to be careful with a startup, yes. I agree. Uh, got to make a really solid evaluation of the technology and the, and the team yep. and then also their business strategy do they exist to you know why do they exist what's their endpoint? right yes i'd be more worried about an organization that seems like it's just out to get acquired as opposed to having a long-term plan to exist mm -hmm. independently yeah for sure sure all right, well, that wraps up the news portion. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Appster. We're talking about intent-based networking and the evolution of automation. That's starting right now. You're listening to Tech Bytes from the Packet Pushers. Appster is our sponsor for today's show, and we're going to talk about how intent-based networking is an evolution of automation. Our guest is Mansoor Karam. He is founder and president of Appster. Mansoor, welcome to the podcast, and let's dive right in. What makes IBN or intent-based networking different from traditional network automation? Yeah, hi, great to be here. Well, intent-based networking is essentially a solution that uniquely both architects and operators use to manage the entire lifecycle of their network operations, day zero, day one, day two plus. So it's not just about essentially pushing configurations, it's also about measuring uh, your network and ensuring that your network is delivering on the desired outcome. And so there's this notion with intent-based networking of intent. Right? And intent is essentially your desired outcome. Could be reachability, could be reachability you know, at a given protocol layer, whether it's L2 or L3, could be security, compliance, quality of experience. So an in, intent-based in networking solution allows you to declare all of those desired outcomes, and then the, net, the, the solution itself will ensure that your network is delivering on this intent across the lifecycle. And again, in a critical aspect here is uh, collecting telemetry uh, and then analyzing telemetry in order to measure whether or not your network is delivering on intent and then letting you know if that is not the case. So I sort of see intent-based networking as the sequel to SDN. When we first started with SDN, it was configuring the network with software. And that's okay, but what it doesn't do is, did my configuration work? So the feedback loop doesn't close. So what normally happens in, you know, simple automations based around scripting and, and tools like Ansible is you make the configuration change and then the network engineer pings something just like he always did to see if it still works. And what we really need is to close that loop and go, I made a change and the change, the configuration is what it should be and that the connectivity is still in place. So this is where I see intent-based network and you're drawing the picture that you can't close the loop unless you've got analytics to see that things are happening. That's exactly right. And you have to do this, you know, as part of, the, the automation solution, not as, a, as an afterthought. In fact, you know, in your example, you know, there are so many examples of disasters right, that have happened because of scripting. Well, you know, if yeah. you're doing things manually, you could essentially maybe screw up one switch, right? You could, you could, you know, you could, you could have an outage in one switch, but then if you have a script that is 
you know, that is uh, configuring thousands of switches without that, you know, continuous validation loop, you know, that's a sure way if you have a mistake to, you know, become completely out of commission, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, so, yeah, that's right. and we've talked to network engineers that have, you know, this, uh, the, the PTSD syndrome of like, you know, the, 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 the pinky finger, right? Like, you know, on the enter button, right? Like, it's like, now, what, when I press, <laughs> what, what will actually happen? What you will know, actually? I call, that un- right. yeah. I call that the unpredictability. There's a lot of problems with even with scripting about is something predictably going to do what you want. Exactly. Isn't the goal of engineering predictability? You know, ultimately, engineering is about delivering on predict systems that behave in a predictable way. Right? Would you get on a plane yeah. if you knew that you know nine out of ten times it would you know it would crash? Right. <laughs> right. So, so 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 essentially, this is exactly right. You know, engineering ultimately you want a predictable result, and intent-based networking is a lot about delivering a predictable result, and networks. Ultimately, yeah, right. have to have predictable performance. Right. And so this the interesting part about this, though, is that Apps is following this concept of a single pane of truth in that you've got one product that does all of these things. That's exactly right, right? That is this single source of truth, a repository of all of the state. You know, essentially, we're marrying intent with all of the state that's in your actual network in this single repository, uh, which, which is extremely powerful if you think about it, uh, because you can, you have not only the state, but all of the relationships between the state that is being uh, you know, updated in real time uh, by the software through our collection of telemetry. And then as you make changes, right, you're making them in the context of the state that you have, right? And so in one, way we, when, one thing we say is that you know, for us, you know, for, in the context of the intent-based networking solution, whether you're making a change in the first time, like whether you're setting up your, the network the first time or whether you're setting it up three days in or three months in, you're making an add move or delete changes, adding a virtual construct, et cetera. You know, it is exactly the same approach that we're following and it's all coded in this single source of truth. Yeah, and I think it's important too that um, people should value products that do it for you because developing all that yourself, you're actually reinventing a wheel. So one of the things that architects, as an architect, when I was, you know, doing a architect, network architecture professionally was I would often do the same thing over and over, but I would often have to reinvent it from the same, from nothing. Whereas SDN allows me to say, um, I, I've got a business process or I've got a common activity. I can pay somebody else to actually conduct those tasks for me. So if I deploy an intent-based networking from Abstra, who do you see it benefiting at most? Is it more of an architecture thing or does it more of the operators to the benefit? It's benefiting both uh, the architect uh, and the operator. But I would say at, at the end, you know, the operator is going to be spending a lot more time uh, with the tool than the architect is. Mm. Um, because, you know, it's something that he's going to be using for his day in, day out, you know, operations uh, of his network. Uh, you know, coming back to your, your point about reinventing the wheel, you're absolutely right. But I think it's worse mm. than what you've, what you've, how you've described it. What we've seen is organizations that say, we're going to do it ourselves. And so we're going to hire the best software engineers and we're going to have this, you know, vision of how we're going to deliver, you know, a custom yeah. solution that works right, you know, that is exactly meeting our needs. And that's a great vision that they have. But then, you know, as soon as they get started, you know, first of all, you know, it's hard to hire the best software engineers. Uh, they're, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, you get attrition. Some people leave, right? And, you know, a few years in, you know, you've rotated the entire team. And ultimately, you know, you're reinventing, you know, you're, you're restarting from scratch, right? So you know, the problem 
of actually building this is extremely hard and is underappreciated. And then combine that mm-hmm. with the fact that, you know, engineers uh, come and go. And in fact, for those organizations, this is not, you know, a critical a business uh, application, right? I've, I've always been a fan of the idea if you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted. And if I'm writing scripts, you know, if I've written a tool that does thing for a company and I decide I want to go and work on this but at the same company, but I want to go, they might say you can't leave because you're the only person who knows how to work it. So uh, I've always been far more selfish. It's not so much, Well, <laughs> you, you know, I look at it from my point of view and go like, I would buy a tool that lets me walk out the door or go somewhere else or do something. Well, else. It's, uh, it's, it's funny you say this because we were working with a customer and, you know, we have this whole capability as part of intent-based networking of root cause identification. Right, and risk identification, actually figuring out the root cause of a problem rather than kind of a sea of red, right, as the alternative, mm. requires a lot of, you know, knowledge of, of your network, which, of course, software is very good at, right? You can you know, yeah, collect yeah, all yeah. of this knowledge. But with that particular customer, there was one person, <laughs> you know, one guy that had all <laughs> that knowledge. And, you know, when we were asking them, so what's your, you know, what's your processes here for, what are your processes for root cause identification? And they're like, well, it's Bob, <laughs> you know, Bob is a <laughs> root cause identification <laughs> engine, you know? And so we're like worried, everyone is worried as to what, you know, what happens if, you know, if Rob, you know, if Bob leaves or something happens to Bob, <laughs> right? You know, at the end, you know, software is far um, you know, better at, uh, you know, at managing. Yeah, back to that reliability both. idea and that you're not yeah. only relying on one person. You get that institutional knowledge, that operational knowledge stays with you rather than in somebody's head. And again, it's repeatable because it's software. That's exactly right. Um, we're seeing a lot of adoption of open networking. So disaggregation, separating the, the hardware from the software, network operating systems. Is Can Appster work in an open environment or is, are you restricted to the typical traditional vendor networks? No, absolutely. We work both with established vendors and with open alternatives. And in fact, this is an ex- exciting time for open networking. I mean, you guys have seen it, right? So I have seen the whole evolution with mm-hmm. open networking since when? When was it? Like the dawn of time. Was it 2010, 2011 when we first <laughs> t- talked about uh, open networking? And, you know, it was always a promise, right? It was always a promise, but we, it, it, it almost felt like the industry wasn't delivering on that. And so this is why for, you know, I think for the industry, 2020 is an exciting year because we've seen, I think, two things happen. One uh, is the rise of Sonic, right, as a viable switch operating system with massive investment from many of the, uh, you know, established vendors out there and, you know, certainly the hyperscalers, um, you know, Sonic today uh, supports enterprise class features such as EVPN and VXLAN, um, and so, you know, it's 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 really you know a first class uh, citizen uh, with Appstra. Right? We we actually support it the same way we support an established uh, a switch from an established vendor. And from an Appstra customer's perspective, you know these things are completely interchangeable. We can you know we can replace an established vendor switch with a Sonic based switch, and the customers the customer wouldn't wouldn't see the wouldn't see the difference. So I think that is actually a really you know exciting new development in open networking. Uh, in 2020. And the second uh, exciting development is, you know, as you guys know, you've seen Cumulus was acquired by Mellanox, which itself was acquired by NVIDIA. Uh, And so Cumulus as an open source switch operating system uh, is now part of, you know, an organization which market cap is actually larger than Cisco. (laughs) Right, and so it's a it's it's actually you know a viable 
a choice out there uh, that you know will be a part of HPC clusters or machine learning or AI clusters that a, a, a vendor such as NVIDIA will be selling to organizations, which is and will be a critical yeah. part of these data centers. And so, in fact, you know, we're seeing it's- a trend towards. Um, you know, a future that is even more multi-vendor than it is today. Organizations can't assume that they can source all of their networking from one single vendor. There is no scenario in which organizations should be buying management software that only works with one vendor. It's a sure path to a, a dead end when you have these valid options that will be part of your network. Well, you end up with a hardware-defined network, not a software-defined network. And you also end up with your network being defined by the hardware itself. And it's very difficult to move forward because you don't get choices. And I think the second part of this, and the one that I'm much more of, is the reality is that sometimes certain switches work better in some places than others. So you might have some part of your data center, which is a LAN, which is high mission critical and you want high value, but there might be another part where best effort and you might want to go with lower cost alternatives, but use the same software layer to run over the top. There's no requirement for the entirety of your data center to run, you know, the same network everywhere. That's often a myth that I don't think people challenge correctly. That's exactly right. And, and you know, again, with the with the trend that we're seeing, right, you know, the, the if you if you want to deploy an HPC cluster, there's going to be you know networking that's going to be you know maybe optimized mm. for the requirements of you know an HPC cluster or a machine learning cluster, right? You know, namely yeah. lower latency. You want lower latency, right? <laughs> um, you, you know, you you may want some uh, networking being done at the NIC layer, right? So there's there's going to be some different requirements there than if you uh, are running maybe a... Wow. <laughs> HPC networks have, uh, are a very interesting use case for that because they'll buy a HPC cluster every year or two. And each one of the clusters will have a... They don't have, uh, share the same network. They get the network to go with the node. So you might have in a HPC environment a GPU cluster Exactly which right. is has a network that was acquired when the GPU cluster was built, and then you might buy a data store exactly cluster, right. and and that's a different network, and then you end up with this backbone of networks which are interconnected. You don't end up with one network all the way through. And if you buy the HPC from this vendor, they might demand that you use these switches, and if you buy a data cluster or a compute cluster, you might be forced to buy a different set of switches to go with that contract and that because they buy everything as a one-off so that is a and that is increasingly where enterprises are headed at the edge because you may find that you're in you know if you're renting edge capacity you may find that you're in an infrastructure where the switches are defined by whatever if you're buying hci you might be buying you know a Nutanix or a cisco you know appflex or you know whatever the brand is that you're going to buy and each one's got a different brand of switch in it that's, that's, and you don't get to choose anymore like you used to that's exactly right and then add cloud to the mix right so if you you know you have applications mm-hmm. running in aws uh, and then you want to uh, you want to run these on premise you're probably going to bring one of these aws uh, you know what do you call them the aws uh, uh, yeah outposts exactly yeah. you're going to put aws outposts or if you want azure you're going to bring an azure stack and these will come in with their own networking, right? And so, you know, it's increasingly the case, to your point, that networks are multi-vendor. So, so what? What? Yes. You're right. You do need to start with software, right? <laughs> what is? You need to start with the operational layer, and you know, the operation layer needs to be a simple operation layer that is intent-based, right? Because ultimately, it's about you know what are the outcomes that you need from your network. 
So as we come to the end of the podcast, uh, what I want to be able to do is look at a use case of one of your customers that's using Appster today. Now, one of the ones that you brought to the table here is you've got a company in Switzerland, Be Elastic, and they're doing infrastructure as a service. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, we this is the a customer we announced recently. Uh, they're Switzerland's first uh, infrastructure as a service and bare metal provider. And what they're doing is allowing their customers to provision their own services and uh, obviously, this, this needs to be super simple, right? They need to have a very simple operational model, and it has to be high performance. So they need some specific hardware, and so you know they do need best of breed solutions. And so for the hardware, uh, they're using uh, Mellanox switches, uh, which meet their high performance uh, requirement. But then for the operational model, they're using AppStra essentially to automate the entire lifecycle and deliver this operational model, uh, this simple operational model to their customers. Uh, and that's interesting because you've got a number of different workloads here. So Appster is not only acting as a provisioning API for the network, I assume, but you're also um, putting together competing requirements. So the customers don't need to, can't see the network, they can't touch the network. It's just got to work. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's essentially where an intent-based networking solution is the most powerful, where you have all of these different requirements, these different outcomes right, that you uh, expect from the network. And it's a simple matter of declaring these outcomes, and then the software will do the work for you. All right. Well, that about wraps up our time. Mansoor, thanks for being here. Where can people go to get more information about Abstra? Yeah, uh, please go to appstra.com slash packetpushers. Fantastic. That's appstra.com slash packetpushers. Uh, Mansoor, thank you for joining us, and thanks to Appstra for being a sponsor. If you like this show, you can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>